not just a creepy rock and roll house. It allows spiritual entities to cross into our world. Girl's been possessed. Now he's on a murderous rampage. Any chefs in the group? I'm pretty handy on the grill. Ah! So fucking juicy. Is the album almost done? It's killer. My latest guilty pleasure. You're welcome, music. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. I am one third of the hosting team tonight, Mike. Joining me as always, it's Mr. Venom. What's up, Venom? How's it going? Greetings and salutations, you sexy ass groupies. How the hell are you, Mike? I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> doing well. Uh, it's just, I don't even know what else to say other than doing well. It feels like freaking almost summer here. Uh, yeah, it did start getting warm suddenly. That's kind of nice because I actually had the heater on last week. I had a heater on in California. That's shocking. I know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Uh, it's nice for the warm weather to be back. I was able to go to the casino this weekend in short sleeves, which is nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right. And also joining us, as always, it's Don and Nelly. What's up, Don? How are you? Yeah, doing good. Uh, tr- trying to uh, make sure that uh, my open window is not going to be too much of a distraction because, yeah, uh, it's harder than I figured out here. But, uh, yeah, uh, other than that, doing pretty good. Yeah, it yeah, feels like sure. in California, we go from February to May. We just kind of skip yeah. a couple of months weather-wise. <laughs> yeah, California, we basically have two seasons, really. Ah, that is true. There's no we, such thing as winter here. I have no yeah, idea Yeah, we might get is. like that two to three weeks of a transition, but other than that, it feels like it's winter and summer. Yeah. I appreciate the fact that I live in a place where our winter is like a week or two of rain, and then it's back to normal. Yeah, that's good. I'll take it. <laughs> All right. Well... This week, so I think at the end of last, of the last episode, we mentioned that we would probably actually have a couple theatrical choices only because one had opened the previous week and one just opened this past Friday. So we went with that one, um, and that is Studio 666. And let's see, uh, the legendary rock band Foo Fighters move in. Literally, yes, the Foo Fighters, for those that aren't familiar with the movie, move into an Encino mansion steeped in grisly rock and roll history to record their much-anticipated 10th album. All right, so this one stars uh, all the Foo Fighters, probably obviously Dave Grohl taking the lead, okay, Jen Ortega's in it. Ask, I was going to ask, that's actually them, right? Yep, all five, all six of them. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the Foo Fighters. Okay. Yep. Yeah, it kind of I'm becomes apparent enough. as the movie goes on. <laughs> well, I wasn't familiar enough with them to know for sure, but yeah. Oh, no, yeah. No, uh, yeah. Like Dave Grohl, maybe Pat Smear, because he was in Nirvana for a little while. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, yeah, if you're not a hardcore Foo Fighter fan, you can't really vouch that these are the actual guys. But yeah, indeed they are. Yeah, some... Um... We'll get into some cameos in a minute, but I guess the other the other people listed as stars are Jenna Ortega, Whitney Cummings, Will Forte, all 
somewhat familiar mm-hmm. um, to varying degrees, I guess, depending on the person. But uh, did I? Yeah, I already read the synopsis. Oh yeah. So this hey, is and you forgot Carrie King, the coolest guy on the goddamn planet. <laughs> That's true, and John Carpenter. <laughs> That's right. Behind the camera and in front. We'll talk about that a bit later. <laughs> All right, yeah. So we will get into our general thoughts on Studio 666, starting with Venom. What did you think? All right, well, I mean, going into it, you know... Uh, this is a horror comedy starting starring a real life band. So right there, your expectations should be slightly tempered. You know, we're not getting hereditary or The Shining by any stretch of the imagination. So with those tempered expectations, I ended up having a pretty good time with this movie. Uh, the story is very been there, done that. There's nothing original about the story whatsoever other than it involves the Foo Fighters. That's about the only original aspect of this story. We've seen it before with stuff like Black Roses and Trick or Treat and countless other, you know, movies about either evil songs or evil musical equipment or, you know, the conjuring the devil, blah, 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 stuff like that. So, like I said, very been there, done that. The highlight of this movie has got to be the kills. These kills are fucking spectacular. They are incredibly over the top and incredibly tongue in cheek. So it's not the kind of gore that you're going to be, like, wincing and turning away from the camera. No, it's just that over-the-top, silly, like, psycho goreman type, you know, just silly exploding body parts here and there and people getting cut in half while having sex. And, you know, so, so it's all a good time. Like, at no point was I necessarily scared or tense or anything like that i mean like i said it's it's a horror comedy i might go so far as to say comedy horror even though yes there is a lot of horror in it um and a lot of gore it's still solidly a comedy starring the foo fighters you know and i think this movie is going to play best to foo fighter fans um the acting is pretty much what you expect i mean these are real life musicians yes dave Grohl has been in some you know, um, TV and movie content before this, but, you know, never as a star. And then the rest of the band acts about as well as you would expect a musician to act. I mean, they're playing themselves. So ultimately, as long as they're not ultra stiff in front of the camera, it should be acceptable. So I didn't have any major problems with um, the the performances of the band, because like I said, they're musicians and I didn't expect them to be decent actors. And if they turn out to at least be able to play themselves successfully, I'll call it a success. And I think they pulled that off. My bigger problem was with some of the cameos in the movie. Um, I thought Whitney Cummings was pretty good. Maybe they used her a little too much and in the weirdest times, because there's a scene with Whitney Cummings where we get the, the, uh, the explanation of everything that's going on, the exposition scene, if you will. And it ends up coming really late in the film. I, I feel like if we would have gotten that a little bit earlier... It might have, you know, made a little bit more sense because why the hell did she wait so long to tell these guys that they were in danger, blah, blah, blah. But like I said, we'll get into that into the spoiler section. Um, my biggest issue as far as cameos go is Jeff Garland. I I genuinely love Jeff Garland. Usually I love his stand up. Um, I love most of the TV appearances that he's done in this movie. He is just so over the top and. Man, did it feel like he was screaming every line in the film that he had? Like, literally every line, every time he spoke, he was yelling. 
And it just got abrasive after a while and annoying. It's like the, the opening scene, or not the opening scene of the film, but the first scene with the Foo Fighters and Jeff Garland, who plays their manager slash record executive, you know, however you want to go with that title. Um, it made sense that he was yelling at the band because he was waiting for this album that, you know, they were kind of dragging their feet with. But his appearances later in the movie, he's still fucking yelling. And a guy that big who's constantly yelling is going to pass out eventually. Jeff Garland's a big dude, if you don't know. He's a big, fat dude. And what, and, and I'm speaking from experience. When a fat guy is constantly yelling, eventually you're going to run out of breath and you're going to need to sit down. So, yeah, his performance was just a little over the top. I thought Will Forte was great as the uh, delivery driver. Um, I thought Leslie Grossman was great as Barb, the realtor, I guess you could call her. Uh, she plays another role in the film as well later on, which we'll get into. Um, and then, of course, Carrie King. Come on. Uh, I know this is truly a cameo because he's in the movie for like all of 10 minutes. But just to see Carrie King in front of the camera and to actually come off as a convincing kind of snotty roadie type guy you know like it didn't he didn't feel like it was over the top like he was hamming it up he legitimately seems like just an angry roadie or you know so uh, perfect casting for that one um so overall i had a fun time with the movie i don't know that i'll ever watch it again because like i said it's just a lot of been there done that with some really cool gore some cool cinematography and then one of the best parts of the movie is the score. We mentioned John Carpenter. Uh, it does have something to do with this movie, and he actually does do the score for this film. Any of the music that's not Foo Fighters on this score is John Carpenter. So he doesn't get a big credit for it. I mean, you, you kind of have to watch the entire credits and see, like, at the very end, uh, you'll see Carpenter's name. And then if you even look at IMDb, it's not even listed here, like, anywhere in the cast and crew. But he very solidly is uh doing the score for this film so yeah so like i said uh i'm rambling again so overall i enjoyed the film it's it's not a great film it's a lot of been there done that um if you're a foo fighters fan i think you'll really really enjoy it um if you're not a foo fighters fan but you are into but you are a little bit of a gore hound then i would say yeah check it out there's going to be something there for you um but ultimately it's not a classic film it's not going to turn into like an annual watch. I can't imagine even Foo Fighter fans are going to turn this into like a cult classic, you know, like The Wall or Song Remains the Same, something like that. So, um, good film that I probably won't watch again. Uh, should I, let me amend that. Not Maybe not good, above average. Let's just say above average, mildly fun, mildly funny, really good kills, and uh, there you go. <laughs> so, take that as you will. All right, we'll move it right over to Don. What did you think? Yeah, um, I I echo a lot of uh, what he said. Um, I had a lot more fun with it than I thought. Um, I mean, you guys uh, kind of cleared up a couple of things I had. Um, I was kind of wondering whether or not that really was them, and um, apparently it was. Um, uh, I, I did notice a couple of the cameos. Carrie King was awesome. I loved him. He was hilarious. Um, <clears throat> I can't imagine some of that could have been a couple stories that he found out from his own experiences. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I can imagine a couple of those were, uh, you know, kind of near and dear to him and he was allowed to just riff off of past experiences for a couple of his stuff. But um, yeah, um, other than the gore, uh, there's not really much of anything here that really stands out. Cause uh, 
Ah, man, the gore in this was awesome. Um, <laughs> a couple of a couple of times, I was kind of getting like deathgasm vibes from what was going on. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, that kind of is uh, one of the problems here is that uh, deathgasm kind of did the metal horror comedy thing a little better. And uh, I mean, a lot better than this. So mm-hmm. it it kind of has like a tough road to climb. Not that I think it's bad. Um, there's just, you know, nothing here that's really memorable about it. I, I, outside of, you know, of course, you know, what we were just saying. But um, nothing really stands out as being too impressive or, you know, memorable enough to really warrant much of any much of any kind of a revisit. Um kind of like a one and done kind of a viewing uh like venom said i i i i feel bad about saying that though because it is fun i mean it's fast and zippy and you don't really have like any kind of lulls um you know there's nothing really like standoutish about the storyline i mean it's just it's cliche and it's been done and you you kind of you know where it's going from the very beginning when they arrive at the house um which I think, Venom, that's something you and I were talking about before we came on, is that uh, it kind of feels like it's a misleading title because it's not, mm-hmm. a, it's not a studio. It's actually the mansion. Yeah, I mean, obviously Mansion 666 doesn't sound, it doesn't roll off the tongue nearly as good as Studio 666. But I would have liked to have at least seen a studio in this house. Like, there, there's no studio. Like, like I was yeah. telling Don before the show, it's quite common for bands to rent out large houses or mansions to record uh, their albums in. But generally, those houses don't have recording studios in them. Just like in this movie, the band has to bring all their boards, their recording equipment, their instruments. They have to bring everything with them. They're basically just taking advantage of the acoustics of these large mansions and mm. things like that. But... It's a minor gripe. I, I was even telling Don before the show, it is It is yeah. a minor gripe, ultimately. Like, I, I did have a good time with this film, you know, for one sit-down. I, you know, I enjoyed it. Um, it. It was The ending was fairly satisfying. It's a little open-ended, but we'll get into that in the spoiler section. Um, but, yeah, just the... Uh, the title is a little misleading, though I 100% understand why they used it. It, like I said, it just sounds better than Mansion 666 or or Record 666 or I don't know something along those lines. But uh, I would like, I mean, how much more expensive could it have been for the for them just to put the facade of a recording studio in one of those rooms and, and make that like the catalyst for all the evil activity or something? I don't know. It just feels like the the title writes a check that the movie doesn't necessarily cash. It's not necessarily a bad thing either. I'm not griping. It's just yeah. an observation more than anything. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think even Rocktober Blood is one, is one that uses the studio setting better than this one. So, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, overall, I, I can't say I hated my time with it. Um, I didn't find anything just too egregious or, you know, unnecessary about it. Just, uh, you know, two minor complaints. I think, you know, in this kind of a genre, Deathgasm does what this one does far better. And I would imagine being more familiar with the band would probably have a greater immersion than what I was granted because mm-hmm. yeah, um I can't say I've ever heard any of their music before. None of the songs that they played sounded familiar. If that was even classic songs or I mean I, I don't know them well enough to know that what they were playing in here was actually 
recent stuff or classics or whatever. I'm, I'm not familiar enough mm-hmm. with them to know. I mean, I don't even know that that was actually them until we came on board. So I can't say that I have any kind of experience or exposure or any kind of a connection to them whatsoever. So, yeah, yeah um, you know, worth a watch, but uh, don't expect much and uh, don't expect to, uh, you know, think highly of it once you're done. But um you, not necessarily something that you're going to regret watching. I mean, Mm-mm. something to fill out your list for the end of the year is probably going to be like my best recommendation for it. So, yeah. Yeah. Other than that, uh, yeah. Back to you. Okay. Uh, so for me, I would say yeah, this is pretty much the movie I expected going in after having seen the trailer. I think, you know, a month or so ago. It, in front of something I saw at the theater. I can't even remember, but um, I would say to its credit, they at least came up with a story that kind of uh, benefits like a real life band of non-actors because I'm assuming they probably drew off real life experience being, you know, Mm -hmm. 20 years into their career, probably struggling in the studio to come up with, something creative or new is a real thing that happens with bands. So, you know, any, any scene where they were like trying to collaborate and make songs to me, that's when like they, the band or trying to act came off the best other, you know, other scenes, obviously it, it becomes apparent like they're not trained um, actors. Um, it doesn't hinder the movie too much. It just, I think in certain scenes like more dialogue heavy stuff it, it becomes a little more apparent mm-hmm. um i would say for the most part i had fun with this one i think the two my two biggest issues um other than like you know kind of like the acting in some scenes is i think the second act meanders a little it, it, it's a yep. little long the movie clocks in at about an hour and 46 and i think if they could have come up with a way to make it like a clean 90 uh, it would have helped move things along. I think the strength of this movie is like the setup and the third act. But once we hit the second act, there's just a lot going on that we don't need necessarily to get to the no. third act. And that's where the movie's a little too fat for my liking. It, you know, just if it was me, I would have taken a little bit of a scalpel to a lot of the stuff in the second act. Um, yeah, like I I actually thought that exact same thing, Mike. Like in the second act, we 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 have to watch no less than three times. David Grohl and the band start playing a song, and then Dave gets writer's block, and then he gets frustrated, and then he runs out of the room. We had to see that three fucking times in this movie. I think once would have gotten the point across, and then we maybe would have gotten a little bit closer to a ninety-minute runtime. But yeah, making us watch it three times, and then a montage of him songwriting and getting frustrated it's like that that definitely brought the movie down like it brought the movie to an absolute halt Uh, for Mm -hmm. the most part i don't have a big issue with the pacing but yeah that second act could have been trimmed almost in half yeah especially because they start mixing in some kills in the second act but because the second act is so long you feel like at that point that's when the pace should have ramped up and gone like that's where we just hit the you know the green light to go 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 but it's like you get a kill and then we have to slow it back down to do more second act stuff um and if they just would have once they started with people being killed and just kind of okay here's our third act and we're going i think that would have helped that i think that would have given it more uh rewatch value if 
you know, they can make it a little bit of a shorter running time. Yeah. Um, and then I, I think I think we've already talked about the kills. I think the kills themselves were very creative, very fun. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of them, I think, you know, were a little more CGI heavy than I would have liked. Although most to the credit, it did seem like some type of mixture of practical with maybe CGI gloss over it. Which yeah, I that, was, give them, that yeah. was the the feeling I got was um, on set effects with just uh, CGI enhancements. Yeah, maybe to give like additional blood splatter and just volume yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. And I think it that's where it they did it right. Where there was a couple kills where it seemed like if not entirely cgi it leaned much more heavily on cgi but otherwise yeah it, it was it was a fun movie you, go, you know when i saw the trailer for this i was like there's a good chance it goes one of two ways either it's gonna be really fun or i'm just gonna be sitting there going what the hell is this and luckily you know to their credit it was uh the former i i had fun with it um you guys have brought up deathgasm i would agree deathgasm did this type of thing about as good as you can do. So compared to that, I would say, yeah, it doesn't get, it doesn't touch the level of deathgasm at all, but I can also see like maybe a double feature, but make sure to watch this one first. (laughs) (laughs) Just, you know, if you're going for like your more modern hard rock metal horror type things, I think this would make a good double feature, but this has to be the starting one. Oh yeah. The one nice thing about this movie, too, is that they do reference a lot of, maybe not reference directly, but there are homages to multiple movies in this. I mean, The Exorcist, The Shining, uh, The Evil Dead with the book. I mean, there are so many. You can tell that um, this director or writer uh, was inspired by by a lot of different horror uh, because he used a lot of different elements of those classic horrors in here without necessarily Mm -hmm. ripping them off. The only one that maybe came close to a ripoff was the exorcist shot when the delivery guy walks up to the house and you get the shot, the, the silhouette shot. Literally, it's the cover of the exorcist, but instead yeah. of the priest, it's a delivery guy holding bags of food. So it's like you can see the obvious homage, but it's still really funny. So it works. So I'll, I'll accept it. <laughs> Didn't um, wasn't there. I don't want to detail it too much, so I won't say exactly what happened, but. Wasn't there a shot with a pair of uh, like hedge clippers that it had to have been a homage to the burning? Like it was absolutely. I was like, that's too much of a coincidence. Um, I mean, because it's true, because um, that's not the most effective way to use those hedge clippers if you're going to kill people. You know, to yeah. actually raise it above your head and bring it down, very much like Cropsy in the burning. So yeah. That's what I was talking about, is that there's just so many homages in here. You can tell that the people who made this movie do genuinely watch horror, and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the movie may not be an absolute triumph, but you know, I still appreciate the pedigree that these guys are coming from. I already know Dave Grohl is a horror fan, has been for years, so that made total sense. Um, so yeah, at the very yeah. least, I appreciate what they tried. I said the same thing last week with Texas Chainsaw. I appreciated that they tried to make the movie look like a spiritual sequel to 74 with the lighting and the use of light and shadows and color and things like that. Um, I mean, this movie is much more successful at what it was trying to do than Texas Chainsaw Massacre by a mile, but I still do appreciate those little touches. Yeah, this, I... This would almost, you know, this is definitely feels like a rock band movie. Like they got mm-hmm. together, you know, almost like a a Beatles Yellow Submarine or the one that Kiss did. Now, obviously, this is more 
you know, on the park. You did not just compare that movie to this, Mike. <laughs> not you did compare. not just compare this movie to. I mean, it's a, it, it, it's a rock and roll movie. I mean, just, in, yeah, it's in the same in stadium. <laughs> um, and then to answer, I think it was Don that had the question about the music. So it's obviously a mixture of like the score. And then the Foo Fighters music in this, uh, they actually made a thrash metal album for uh, this movie because their normal music is more like hard rock, yeah, uh, not not so much metal. Mm-hmm. But they specifically made like a you could look it up like on Spotify yeah. or YouTube. They made a thrash metal. Uh, mm. like they did an entire album just to release with this movie, and that's what the the music like they're attempting to make for their album in this. Mm-hmm is some of the music off of that. So, yeah. because yeah, any, anyone that I I'm, I'm whatever on Foo Fighters. Like I think they're fine for being yeah. that right. genre. I'm not a huge fan of them, but anyone that's familiar with their music knows their music isn't even as heavy as what they were doing in this uh, movie. So I thought that was a nice touch that they actually made like a harder, uh, harder sounding album. It makes, I mean, it. it definitely makes sense for a horror film, um, mm-hmm. especially because, you know, of the, uh, excuse me, the opening scene where we see the original um, band that lived in that house. So right. it definitely, it makes more sense that the music is heavier, especially considering what the song is and what it's supposed to do. It makes sense that it's metal because I mean, could you imagine them singing like Everlong and, and somehow that conjures demons that that's yeah, a little bit harder to swallow, but yeah. um, yeah, yeah. Most of the music that's in this is newer stuff from them. The only classic Foo Fighters stuff that we hear is in that one scene where Dave actually plays the riff for All of Me, and the band is like, Dave, you wrote that song like 20 years ago. And mm-hmm. then he plays the opening riff for Everlong, and again, they're like, Dave, what the fuck? You're just writing your own songs. And that's, oh, that's, you know, so that, that's what that scene was. Yeah, those, oh, those, okay. those two songs I that he that played was... were are actual, and they're not even like obscure Foo Fighter songs. They're like their biggest hits. So, uh, so that it kind of added to the comedy. Obviously, you kind of had to be in on the joke for that to work. But yeah, okay. yeah. I, I thought that was just like random stuff that they just were like, no, you've already written that, or yeah, no. no was... <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, there was a part of me that kind of figured that, but I mean, yeah, it makes yeah. a little bit more sense. Exactly. Yeah, it makes sense that they would use their more their most popular songs just in case people aren't you know, ultra knowledgeable of the Foo Fighters. You're not going to pull out like any of their obscure B-sides or anything. So yeah, those two songs that he plays are literally their biggest hits ever. Uh, so that, which, like I said, it kind of adds to the comedy of that scene. So there you go. Yeah. And I guess just, um, what do I got left for general? Just uh final thing on general thoughts. Yeah. I thought the supporting cast were good. Like the cameos that popped up for the most part, they, um, I, I, it was funny because Whitney Cummings' character, I, I couldn't tell at first. I was like, is she like helpful or is she like gonna pull a swerve on her exactly. own? But, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, for the it's most always part, hard to trust attractive women in horror movies <laughs> that seem to be helpful. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I, I guess I, I guess I'm just jaded. I don't know. I see an attractive woman trying to be helpful, and instantly I'm like, uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I think that's all I got for uh, general thoughts. Yeah. Um, what else did I want to bring up? God damn. Um, I do have to say that this movie now replaces Friday the 13th Part 2 as my favorite kill during sex. 
this kill is spectacular. I'm not, we're not going to get into it until we officially get into the spoiler section, but I just want to say now that that is officially now my favorite death during sex in a horror film. Mm. Fucking <laughs> loved it. It's, uh, it, 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 it's, uh, it's on my list. It would be on my list if uh, we were doing that on my show, but I, I don't know if it tops it. Maybe the nostalgia for me kind of keeps it on there. I mean, that's valid. I, Absolutely. And, and, and Bay yeah. of Blood, too, which they were kind of emulating with that kill in Friday the 13th Part 2. Bay of Blood did it better. Or, excuse me, Bay of Blood did it first, I meant to say. Did it first. <laughs> yeah, I, as much as I, I mean, I still haven't seen the uncut version of 2, so I don't know if they replace, if it, if there's better version in the, if there's a better version. But at least in the theatrical version, yeah, I, I still prefer the Part 2 version over Bay of Blood. Obviously, because it's a more serious death, you know, it's not meant to be yeah. taken tongue in cheek. Whereas this one, I mean, you see, <laughs> you see the killer under the bed smile into the camera before they do what they're going to do. So obviously, that's what I mean about the kills in this movie are very tongue in cheek. They're not, they're not like painful to watch. I mean, the, yeah, the gore is over the top and ridiculous, but it's a fun kind of over the top. You know, it's not human centipede part two by any stretch. <laughs> 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 Which I love, by the way. I'm not. I'm not railing on that movie. I adore that movie, but for completely different reasons, obviously. <laughs> uh, man, what else? What else? See, that's the problem with theatrical releases. Is I don't really get to take notes because I don't want to bother people in the theater with my phone or whatever. But man, some of these kills uh, just so spectacular and there's a couple at the end that you just don't see coming that just are completely jaw-dropping uh again we'll wait for the spoiler section to kind of talk in detail about those but yeah overall i had a fun time with the movie i i i can recommend it like i said as i've said i am a foo fighters fan and i am a dave grohl fan specifically i i recently watched his episode of hot ones you know that show where the celebrities eat spicy wings uh, and I had an absolute blast with it. It's literally one of my favorite episodes now. So yeah. Oh Dave, yeah, I saw a preview of that. It's, I, I yeah, it just came out like one. three days ago. I watched it like two nights ago, and it, it's damn entertaining. Dave Grohl is even more of a badass to me now after watching this. You'll know what I mean after you watch it. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> so I am a fan, you know. Ultimately, and and the movie, like I said, even though I am a fan coming into this uh, of the band. I'm I'm still going to give a little bit of a lukewarm, you know, overall review of the movie, because like I said, it, it's a lot of bit in there done that um, Mike is right with that second act dragging out a little bit, you know, making us watch Dave Grohl get mad at his band over and over again. Um, some of the other stuff uh, that Mike was talking about, I also agree with that. Yeah, it just it's just a second. act. It's not I wouldn't say it's like boring or anything. It just kind of grinds. I was bored. Halt. It, it, I was bored. I was like, Mike, I, I never even realized it was actually that long. I mean, I, you guys said it was an hour 45. I never felt it. I thought it was more just like barely an hour 40. Yeah, it's, an, yeah, it's one. I, I, it, it I actually never, said 150 as I was going into the theater, an hour 50, which is what I was expecting. But I guess AMC just kind of rounds up their uh, uh, times. Uh, but yeah, I mean, when, like I said, by the third time that I had to watch Dave Grohl try to play a song, get mad at his band, and then walk out in a huff, uh, I'm like, really? Are you really going to make me watch that again? I get the fucking point. Dave Grohl's a perfectionist, and he's the kind of guy that gets mad at his band members when they don't do what they're supposed to do. I'm the exact same way. Granted, I haven't been in a band in years, 
But when I was, yeah, I was I was that guy who just got pissed at his band members when they couldn't play this note correctly or, you know, the drummer couldn't handle this transition or whatever. So I understand where Grohl is coming from, and he never really comes off as toxic necessarily. Um, some people might look at it that way. People who aren't musicians, who've never been a musician and have no experience whatsoever, they might look at Dave Grohl in this movie and think, oh, what an asshole. But in all honesty, he was one of the more reserved, angry musicians I've ever seen. So, uh, you know, I want to give him props for that. But yeah, I mean, fun movie. I, I can't really, not really a whole lot left non-spoiler that I have to talk about. Uh, what about you guys? Man, I'm almost uh, spent on notes myself. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would just, I guess, add that, like, it's, uh, from what I'm reading, it didn't do all that great this weekend at the box office, so, I mean, for anyone that's, like, on the fence, I would say, just go see it. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to oversell it as the greatest thing ever, but, hey, people say they want something new and different, and while the story's not, it's not like the story's brand new or unique, but it's still fun, and it's something to do i mean it's horror at the theater exactly i mean you should still support the community support the genre if you guys want to see more theatrical releases we have to support movies like this and ultimately i mean hell you know bad horror movies come out all the time and they make 40 million dollars their opening weekend but then you know you get something halfway decent like you know something like a lamb or and i'll even use studio 666 um as an example where it seems like it's going to do well when it comes out, but then it just kind of fizzles when it's released. And it's too bad because it is a fun yeah. movie. And hopefully, honestly, uh-huh. oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, for the most part, everything I've seen, people are positive on it. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. it's to varying degrees, but I haven't really seen much negative said. It's just that people didn't go see it. So. Exactly. The, the few people who saw it seemed to like it. Yeah, so it's it'll be a shame if, you know, late this year or next year it pops up on Shutter or Netflix and everyone's like, oh, this is awesome. When did this come out? And it's like, exactly. oh, man. Another empty man situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, well. All right, what do you say? Move on to some spoilers? Yeah, let's do it. All right, that's I'm ready. That's your spoiler warning, folks. We're going to start talking a little bit more in depth. Uh, ultimately, this is a theatrical release where I can't take notes, so the walkthrough isn't really going to be much of a walkthrough. I'm just going to kind of talk about some key scenes. Our movie opens up in 1993, um, where the band Dream Widow is living in a mansion in Encino, and they are recording an album. But basically what we're seeing is... um, uh, the the actress Jenna Ortega, uh, her character basically being stalked in this mansion. She's running around trying to escape. Finally, uh, she ends up getting her leg broken, a compound fracture of the thigh, no less. Holy shit, that has to hurt. Um, and basically, the killer gets the upper hand, and she basically just says, she just screams out loud, we did everything you asked us to. We, we did it, you know? And then the killer just completely smashes Jenna Ortega's head with a hammer. So instantly, I mean, literally within three minutes of the start of this movie, you've already kind of got uh, a sense of where this movie is going because this kill is pretty gnarly. I mean, you know, we don't, it's not like the camera stays right on Ortega's head, but we get to see multiple hits. We get to see her head fucking caved in after the fact. It's a pretty gnarly kill. Uh, for a theatrical release. So, yeah, we've already had kind of the tone set for us. 
then fast forward to present day, uh, 2021, I guess, for the sake of the film. And the Foo Fighters are at their recording, uh, at their record uh, record company's like home office. Uh, they're in a boardroom, and Jeff Garland is basically yelling at them. Jeff Garland, who plays their manager. Um, and for some reason, IMDb doesn't have his credit. It says that he's in the movie, but uh, the title of his character is empty. Even though I know for a fact they said his name in the movie, I just can't remember what it was. But like I said, he's the record executive who's pissed off at the Foo Fighters for dragging their feet on their new album. They haven't done an album in a few years. And, you know, he's worried about, you know, uh, the bottom line, obviously, for his company. And Dave Grohl basically announces that, well, this is our 10th album. We don't want to do the same thing that we've always done. By the way, folks, for those who don't know, this movie actually is partially based on true events. Uh, for those who don't know, the Foo Fighters actually did rent a mansion in Encino to record their 10th album. Uh, and it turned out that after they moved in, someone informed them that the, the mansion was supposedly haunted. Um, Dave Grohl and the guys don't claim to have ever seen anything. Obviously, nobody was possessed. Nobody was cut in half. But they did record an album in a haunted mansion in Encino. So at least the basis for our storyline is based in reality. So a uh, little, little tidbit of information there for you. So um, what Dave Grohl decides is they don't want to record the, studio, uh, the album in a studio. They want to record it on in a private house, like a property where they can live and do nothing but you know, eat, sleep, and drink music. Um, and and then as soon as they say that, you can kind of see Jeff Garland's expression change from anger to almost giddiness. Like he cracks a wry little smile, and then he's like, "Oh, I got a house for you. Yeah, okay, no problem. Let me call my realtor." Uh, his realtor ends up being Leslie Grossman, playing Barb, the realtor. And uh, the realtor ends up taking the band to this house. It's a really nice house in Encino. The pool's a little messy. I mean, you could tell it's a mansion that maybe hasn't had anybody living in it for a while. And that is the story in the movie that no one's lived in it since uh, Dream Widow uh, were all killed in, in that house. Um so, you know, the guys are kind of looking around. They uh, they decide that, you know, the vibe is kind of weird in here. And they, they kind of decide they don't really want the house. But then for some reason, as they're about to leave, Dave Grohl claps his hands where he's like, okay, let's get out of here. When he claps his hands, the echo of his clap is so, like, resonantly beautiful that he decides, wait a minute, listen to that. And then he keeps clapping, like single claps. Like, you guys hear that? You guys hear that? And every time, like the reverberation of the clap just goes throughout the entire house and it, it sounds almost fake. It sounds almost, almost processed. And then with that, they decide that they're gonna go ahead and record in this house because the acoustics are just too good to pass up. So. Uh, we, uh, it's now our first night in the house with the band. Um, basically the only real major thing that happens here is, um, Dave does order some food, which ends up being delivered by Will Forte. Uh, Will Forte ends up, uh, his character, the delivery driver, um, is a big fan of the Foo Fighters. Turns out he's a big fan of the Foo Fighters and he starts talking to Dave and he wants to drop off a demo later, but obviously, for anybody who's ever been a musician worth a shit, 
having other people say, hey, listen to my demo is is about the same thing as being stabbed in the eye with a fork. In fact, I'd rather be stabbed in the eye with the fork than have an indie musician tell me to listen to their demo. So, and I'm a nobody for fuck's sake. So yeah, it, it's just one of those infuriating things that popular musicians have to live with. Um, Dave gets mad because Will Forte forgot their extra ranch. <laughs> so he leaves to go get it, but ends up not coming back just out of embarrassment or whatever. And that night, Dave sees a shadowy figure wearing um, one of those like uh, old time taxi cab hats. I know that, I don't know what the name of those hats are. I don't want to call it a beret. I don't think it's a beret, but you know what I mean? Like one of those old time New Yorker uh, turn of the century type hats. Anyway, um, he sees this figure with a pair of shears um, and he's basically trimming the hedges. And Dave obviously doesn't understand because he wasn't told that, that the house came with a gardener or, you know, a, a landscaper or whatever. So he chases the guy and the guy ends up disappearing. Just poof, disappears in midair. And Dave just spits out, damn, that was weird. And then just goes right back in the house. Um, the next day is when Dave starts hearing voices in the house. And he hears uh, the, on the second night that they're in the house, he hears a voice calling his name. He ends up following the voice down to the basement of the mansion and like a, almost like a cellar area because the entrance is outside the house. So basically he goes down into the cellar and he finds all this old recording equipment, like reel to reel recording uh, equipment. And, and then he turns to his left and he looks on the wall and he sees a raccoon that's been just eviscerated, uh, nailed up to the wall. Uh, basically, its insides have been exposed and it's basically bleeding into a drain on the floor. Um, Dave thinks that that's just some, you know, stupid kids and their satanic shit. So he doesn't really think too much about it. But then he finds a a reel to reel, uh, like a reel of tape that isn't damaged, that you know hasn't been destroyed, and he puts it on the recorder. And then that's when we get like this really cool doom metal, you know, something that maybe Cathedral or um, Candlemass might perform, just a slow, dirgy, really cool heavy metal song. And Dave starts flipping out because he recognizes the band. Apparently, uh, he and the rest of the band were actually fans of this fictitious band, Dream Widow. So that's why when he hears it and realizes that he's listening to an unreleased track from Dream Widow, instantly cool, he's cool just like, too. huh? Cool, cool band name. I thought it was Death Widow at first, like <laughs> I, like throughout the movie. And then I watched the closing credits and I'm like, oh, Dream Widow. OK, whatever. That's kind of weird, but I'll take it. Uh, so, yeah. So um, Dave is listening to this song. It turns out to be just a badass doom metal song in a key that he doesn't recognize. And basically what ends up happening is uh, Dave figures out the key that this song is in. By the way, um, as he's listening to the recording, suddenly there's a lot of loud screeching. You know, Dave is uh, covering his ears and yelling. He's finally able to turn uh, the machine off, the recorder off. But obviously the song is resonating in his head. Instantly he goes upstairs. He shows the band um, the key that the song is in. And it turns out that the key that this song is in is L sharp. Um, that means nothing to you non-musicians, but if you're a musician, you know that L sharp does not exist. Uh, there are no notes above G uh, on the musical tablature. 
So um, when we hear, as a musician, I laugh when I hear L sharp, but um, but then they play it. He actually plays like the a chord in L sharp, and it does sound really cool and different. It doesn't sound like a major or minor key. It doesn't sound like you know, Lydian or Phrygian or any of the other music modes. Again, I know I'm speaking Greek to you non-musicians, but you, the musicians out there know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, and he basically shows the band the key and then shows the band the progression of the song. Uh, what ends up happening is the song goes from a single track, like a single song, to a 46-minute epic, literally a 46-minute song, which isn't unheard of. I mean, we've seen that before from countless, you know, progressive bands and, you know, bands doing concept albums, things like that. Um, but the rest of the band's really pissed off about it because this is the Foo Fighters. They make their life, you know, they make their living on the radio. They make short, quick, catchy little tunes. And now here they are suddenly recording a 46-minute epic, which much to the chagrin of everyone, except Dave Grohl, who at this point, um, it is very obvious that at this point he is possessed after... Basically, after the episode with the recorder in the cellar, we see Dave get up and um, kind of carrying himself differently. We also sometimes we'll see shots, which I know you saw in the trailer, where his eyes are either black or his teeth are sharp and pointy, things like that. We'll get like an occasional glimpse of that. So it's very obvious that Dave Grohl is possessed by something at this point. Um, and then we just uh, kind of systematically go through the band. Dave, basically, uh, the first person that Dave actually kills is the delivery guy, Will Forte. Um, and that's the kill that we see. I believe that's the kill that Mike was talking about with the shears, where he looks like Cropsy, where he raises the shears above in his head, brings it down on Will Forte's neck, closes the shears, and his head just pops right off. Um, actually pretty decent looking decapitation. I mean, it was nighttime too. So they have the benefit of not having to light it all too brightly. Um, and then, like I said, Dave just basically goes through his band one by one. Um, I forget the, I don't know the individual names of every person in the band. I know Rami is the keyboard player. Who's a sex addict. Um, I think Taylor is the drummer. Uh, the blonde drummer, and then I'm not 100% sure on what the rest of the guys are called. Oh, Pat Smear, obviously, the older guy with the bleach blonde hair. Um, most people know him from Nirvana more than the Foo Fighters, but um, basically Dave takes out one of his crew me or, um Oh, I forgot. No, we got to talk about Kerry King first. Before we talk about all that, I forgot. I completely skipped over. Uh, Kerry King ends up dying about 10 minutes into the movie via electrocution. Uh, basically, he's setting up the musical equipment. He's setting up the board upstairs in the bedroom and ends up, I forget exactly how it happens, but he ends up closing a circuit on himself and literally just roasts himself. I mean, he literally looks like a burnt hot dog when he's all said and done. And we do see like his spirit, if you will. I don't know if it's legitimately his spirit. It might be just more Dave's hallucination. So we do see Carrie King as a crispy zombie uh, a couple of more times later in the film. Once we see his head in the barbecue, another time we see him kind of floating above Dave Grohl's bed before Dave has been possessed. Um, so, yeah, Carrie King. Awesome. Uh, I mean, for, for a five minute cameo, he absolutely killed it. <laughs> Just totally loved it. So um, let's see. Who's the next to die? I 
I don't remember the exact order of how the members die, but basically when Dave kills the first band member, he puts his head in the barbecue because this was the band member that was making fun of his barbecue skills earlier in the movie. Uh, he actually made a terrible joke about, oh, yeah, you're really good at barbecue if you like your meat dry and tasteless. It's a joke that fell completely flat, but, you know, it's kind of a dad joke that kind of sets the tone nonetheless. So, uh, so like I said, Dave ends up burning, uh, basically putting that guy's face directly into the grill and then grabbing the knife uh, that's sitting right there next to the grill. And he stabs the guy multiple times. What's funny is that we actually see Dave Grohl eating this guy later in the movie, uh, probably like 10, 15 minutes later after this scene. We literally see him sitting at the table eating a human. Um, he's basically almost done because the human is basically just bones with a little bit of meat, you know, a little a little bit of leftover meat here and there on the bones. So and the band sees this and their reaction is so mundane that it's almost funny. Like, nobody freaks out that their guitar player and lead singer is eating their other guitar player on a picnic table outside. But they're all very, because at this point, you know, they've gotten little clues here and there. They've spoken to Whitney Cummings, who we haven't really mentioned Whitney Cummings as Samantha. She's the next door neighbor living next door to this mansion. She kind of tells these guys early on, she tells them the story about the band that lived in there and what ended up happening with it. But then later in the movie, she actually gives more specific exposition, which I thought was a little late in the film. Um, Cause by that point in the film, the audience has pretty much already put together what's happening. You know, I like, we don't need the exposition other than to get names to the faces, but otherwise it, 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 it just felt to me like it came a little bit late. No big deal, honestly, a minor gripe. Uh, let's see. Uh, how else does Dave kill people? Um, shit. Doesn't Dave end up killing one of his guys also with those shears? Like he sticks them uh, in there. Is he, that what I'm thinking of? He, he killed uh, the drummer after he finished the drummer solo with oh, the cymbal. Drummer. The drummer. In, he in, the in cymbal what I think, uh, Yeah, it was a cymbal. Basically, uh, Dave Grohl throws the cymbal, and I think we've seen it in the trailer where he throws a cymbal at Taylor. Mm -hmm. And he basically does that half decap thing where instead of completely decapitating him, he basically cuts his head in half it's like and then lower jaw down. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's very wrong turn. Anybody who saw the original wrong turn, that exact kill is in that movie. Admittedly, they did it a little bit better in wrong turn because that kill was up in a tree. It was like at a high elevation. And then the body just kind of falls down the tree, missing half its head. In this movie, they do it. Um, where the drummer is just kind of standing against the wall. Dave throws the cymbal, cuts his head in half, and then the, the, the his body just kind of slowly falls as the arterial spray is just spraying blood all over the room. You know, very over-the-top, very anime-like, so I appreciate that. Um, then finally, uh, like I said, Whitney Cummings ends up giving uh, the actual backstory what ends up happening is that band, Dream Widow, that lived in the house, their lead singer was a Satanist, um, and a, an occultist who was basically trying to purposely conjure demons or the devil himself during the recording of their album back in 1993. Um, this is when we first see the book. Uh, I forget what the name of the book is. They did name it. It's not the Necronomicon, though it is a book bound in human flesh. 
Um, and they actually have to feed the book. Uh, basically, every time someone gets killed, um, the killer may take some of the blood and actually feed it into the little mouth on the front of the book. I just sat here and said it's not like the Necronomicon, but there is a mouth and a face on the cover of it. So it is very similar, admittedly. Um, ah, what else? At one point, Dave uh, chops up his drummer's body in a wood chipper in what's kind of a funny scene because he's just being, you know, he's obviously possessed by a demon and he's just being kind of nonchalant, almost giddy about it, like throwing his drummer's body parts into the wood chipper. Um, he then notices that Pat and Chris are hiding behind a, a pile of wood uh, and then starts that chase where he's chasing them down. Eventually, they are able to get away from Dave. And what ends up happening is they try to jump in the van. There's um, mm -hmm. Earlier in the movie, Dave had taken away the van keys and everybody's cell phones. Um, this was post-possession. This is possessed Dave, obviously. <laughs> who basically just wanted to make sure that no one left the house. Cause he was like, we have to finish this song because dream widow didn't finish it back in 93. Um, the lead singer of dream widow uh, who basically killed all the rest of his band ends up uh, committing suicide. That's all still part of the opening scene. We see that in the opening scene. I just forgot to mention that. Um, Let's see. So after Whitney Cummings gives them, you know, the full breakdown, she lets them know that they have to find that book and she mentions that the ritual almost always starts with raccoon blood. Pat Smear remembers that Dave had mentioned something about a dead raccoon being down in that cellar. He didn't mention that it was fucking eviscerated. He just said <laughs> that there's a dead raccoon down there. Um, so later on, of course, Dave, uh, excuse me, Pat Smear and Chris go down to the basement. They see the, um, they see the raccoon up on the wall. It's still dripping blood. I don't know how. I, I, I'm not sure how many days later this is from when Dave found the raccoon, unless it's a new raccoon. Maybe they're putting a new raccoon up there every day. Who knows? But um, basically, <laughs> the guys notice that the blood of the raccoon is dripping into a drain, like a, like a storm drain, a water drain. And they're, they're noticing little bits of smoke or fog coming out of the vent. So they decide to look down in there. And of course, there is our book in question. Um, so basically, you know, rather than having to carry the book, they just put the raccoon up on the wall on that one spot. And then he drips down into the drain, which goes into the book and feeds the book, which, you know, brings out all the demons and blah, blah, blah. I think Whitney Cummings described it as the book is like, um, a way to open the portal between the live, the lands of the living and the dead, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Like I said, stuff we've seen before. Um, Evil book, does spells, merges <laughs> the worlds. Exactly. We've seen all, yeah, we've been there. Oh, yeah. We've been there, and it's been done better. But I did I did like the gag, though, of like the the raccoon set up to slowly drip blood to keep the book like fed yeah. with blood. That was cool. That was interesting. Yeah, I definitely thought that was kind of creative, you know, because obviously with a book that important, you'd think that the antagonist would carry it around with them or something. But to actually leave it in a spot where it does the most, well, not the most good, but the most good for the person who owns the book. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I thought it was a genius idea as well. Uh, so anyway, after the guys kind of see this, um, they grab the book. Uh, the book kind of comes to life a little bit, and then the dead raccoon on the wall ends up coming to life, literally with all its guts and insides hanging out. 
Um, it comes to life and starts screaming at them, blah, blah, blah. They start to run out of that cellar and then they start to see the demons, the demons that Dave Grohl has been seeing throughout the movie. You know, red, bright red, colorful eyes with glowing red teeth. And then the rest of them is just a black silhouette. Like literally the only color on them is their eyes and their teeth. Kind of similar to the monsters from Attack the Block, where their teeth kind of glue, they, they glowed like a green hue, except here it's red. So um, they, like I said, Pat and Chris run out of the cellar. Uh, they end up finding the keys to the van. They go out to the van. Unfortunately, the van won't start for one reason or another. Um, so um, Pat goes underneath the car to kind of hotwire it or whatever. In the process of him hot wiring the car, Jeff Garland and Leslie Grossman's characters show up at the mansion dressed in black robes. So that pretty much tells you exactly what you need to know. Yes, this was a plot by Jeff Garland. Uh, basically, Jeff Garland was um, his character said that rock and roll was dead, that it had been dead for over 10 years and that it needed an infusion of the devil of evil to kind of resurrect rock and roll to get back like to the, the dirty evil roots of rock and roll from like the eighties and whatnot, uh, you know, the satanic panic era and whatnot. So, um, you know, like I said, they kind of give away their plot. Um, Barb decides to go after, uh, Chris and Pat and, uh, Dave Grohl and Jeff Garland basically have one of the most ridiculous fights I've ever seen. Cause all they do is kick each other in the nuts over and over again. Literally the fight starts out normal. Like they're rolling around on the ground. They're throwing a few punches here and there, but then the fight devolves literally into Rochambeau where literally they're just, eh, I'll kick you in the nuts. And then Jeff Garland gets up. Eh, I'll kick Dave Grohl in the nuts. They literally do this like three or four fucking times. Which sounds like it might be annoying, but I was entertained the entire time. Because literally, here's a guy literally fighting for his soul, and he's kicking a guy in the nuts to try to get the upper hand. So yeah, rock on, Dave Grohl. <laughs> um, eventually, uh, Barb does catch up with Pat and Chris. They're still at the van trying to hotwire it. Uh, and she's approaching slowly. Chris is in the driver's seat. Pat is underneath the van. And Chris notices this robed figure walking towards them, this silhouetted robed, robed figure walking towards them. He starts yelling at Pat to hurry up, hurry up. Uh, somebody's coming. They're almost here. Uh, eventually, just as Barb is about to get close enough to speak to the two guys, um, they are successful in um, hot wiring the car. Unfortunately, as soon as the car starts, Chris slaps it into reverse and literally crushes Pat Smear's head into fucking pieces. It is, it's epic, my friends. Yeah, it, it, that, that death was just fucking amazing. And out of nowhere, like, you just don't expect that. You know, these two guys are escaping. You know, you would expect, like, one of the antagonists to do something bad to them. But literally, Chris killed Pat. Accidentally, obviously. But, mm -hmm. yeah, in just a fit of panic, he runs over his guitar player's head. So, yeah, that, that was a pretty interesting kill. Um, at the at the same time, after as he's running over Pat, he ends up hitting Barb. She's on the ground. She's you know, perceivably dead, you know, on the ground, not moving. 
he gets out of the car or he gets out of the van. Chris gets out of the van. He looks at Pat. He starts apologizing. Dude, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And then he notices Barb on the ground and like an idiot, he decides to walk up to her to see if she's dead. And just as he's close enough to, you know, within uh, striking distance, she literally takes a dagger that she had with her and uh, she puts it up through his lower jaw, through the top of his head. Very similar to what we saw on The Prowler. I know there's other movies mm-hmm. we've seen that style of kill. But yeah, the knife goes up under the chin and straight through the top of the head. And what actually looks pretty good, this one is obviously completely CG. There's not really any practical to this one. Uh, but again, it's shot at night. So they have the benefit of darkness to kind of hide any imperfections. You can still see some here and there, but for the most part, I thought the effects, uh, the effects team did a pretty decent job with this one. All right. So at this point, Dave Grohl. um, Oh, and by the way, um, as Barb stabs Chris, she then keels over and dies herself. So Barb definitely is dead at this point. (laughs) So at this point, all we're left with is Jeff Garland and Dave Grohl kicking each other in the nuts. Um, Oh, shit, I skipped that whole scene at the pool, didn't I? Son of a bitch. Um, okay, let's let's rewind a little bit. Yeah, when they confront the other band. Oh, well, when they first save Dave. Uh, basically... Oh, okay. Yeah, basically they find the book. Chris finds the book, and then using a suggestion from Whitney Cummings' character, Samantha, he reads a passage from the book, which basically turns the water into pool into holy water. So now they have an entire pool of holy water, at one point, you know, uh, Dave, possessed Dave, basically leaps towards them to attack them. He he jumps short. Uh, his jump is shorter than he planned, and he actually falls into the pool. And then we kind of see the pool start to bubble while Dave is in it. We see the demons disappear. Like, they literally, almost like they got dusted by Thanos in Infinity War. They just kind of disappear. And then Dave comes out of the pool more like Dave, he's he's back to being Dave Grohl, and then he ends up vomiting, I don't know, what looked like about three buckets of something, uh, something kind of tan color, tan in color, I don't know. It almost looks like a chocolate milkshake, but basically he pukes a shitload of it, like a lot of it. Uh, I don't know if that, oh, right, uh, he's... It turns out he's basically puking out the demon that possessed him because as they start to walk away, the puke itself actually starts to form into a human shape. It actually starts to bubble and then you see the shape kind of start to come out of it. And it turns out it is the singer from Dream Widow, the original Satanist who's kind of started all of this. He, you know, starts monologuing like every villain does starts talking about how he can't be stopped and, you know, the the song has to be put out and blah, blah, blah. But then just as this guy is about to kill Dave Grohl, um, the other members of Dream Widow appear in ghost form, obviously. Uh, So and basically, you know, Jenny Ortega is there and she takes the book from this guy uh, she grabs a little bit of blood from her ex-lead singer, who's now kind of bleeding on the ground, and she feeds it to the book. And within a few seconds, the guy just literally explodes into a fucking just a cloud of blood. At the same time, the other four members of Dream Widow also disappear with him. And you can hear Jenny Ortega say thank you to Dave Grohl as she kind of disappears into the night. 
obviously that's the, the, the like I said, the rest of the me- the members of Dream Widow kind of getting their revenge against their Satanist lead singer, blah, blah, blah. Then, after all of this, we go to our final. This movie kind of has Lord of the Rings syndrome, where we actually get multiple endings. We get at least three endings. We get the ending where they save Dave. We get the ending where they kill the, the lead singer of Dark Widow. And then we get the third ending, which is the one that we're up to. Dave Grohl and Jeff Garland are fighting. And suddenly they both get tired and kind of fall over. And Jeff basically says to him, you finished the song, didn't you? That's why you're so pissed. That's why you're trying to stop me right now. You finished the song. And, you know, of course, Dave Grohl being Dave Grohl is like, you know, that that song can never be released. It could never, you know, you know, um, be sent out to the masses, blah, 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 because of what may happen if that song is performed for the masses. You know, the whole opening of the portal between the land of the living and the dead. What ends up happening is uh, Jeff. Uh, Jeff Garland's character basically says to Dave, come on, Dave, this this isn't the end of your story. This is just the next chapter. Now that the rest of your band is all dead, now it's Dave Grohl's solo artist. And you see Dave kind of change his expression, and then the movie fades to black, which, you know, obviously seems odd. But then the movie fades back up for one final scene, and what we see is Dave Grohl, the solo artist, playing in a large arena or about to he's basically backstage about to go perform I'm, I'm not sure if it's the first time he's about to perform or you know one of many times that he's already performed that song but basically right before he goes out on stage we get a close-up of dave's face and we see one of the veins under his eyes start to turn black and start to go black down his face and then fade to black and that is Studio 666 2022. Um, I think the movie is a lot better than the walkthrough that I just gave it. <laughs> like, it doesn't sound like it's a very fun movie listening to me talk about it. But if you're still with us, obviously, you've already either seen the movie or don't care about it. So just realize that the movie is a little bit better than I make it sound <laughs> in this particular case. There's I skipped a lot of set pieces. There's set pieces in here. Um you know, we didn't really get too much into the uh, getting chainsawed in half during sex, which, I mean, it's so great. It comes out of nowhere, and the chainsaw literally goes through the back of Whitney Cummings' head in what is definitely a practical effect, because you can kind of see the cut where it yeah. goes from real Whitney to the to the prop. But it looks so good, because the chainsaw goes up through her head, and then he just runs it lengthwise down the bed, literally cutting Rami and uh, Samantha in half. And we get to see it, too, because we actually get to see the body, the, the two halves of both their bodies kind of split open um, in, in what actually is a pretty impressive looking shot. So uh, and then, of course, like I said, like I mentioned earlier, right before that kill, we see possessed Dave Grohl under the bed, look, into, look directly into the camera and smile which obviously kind of gives away what's about to happen. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, the movie's a lot more fun than maybe I made it sound or that I gave it credit for. Um, I don't regret watching it by any stretch of the imagination. It was a fun time. Um, I don't know, like I like I mentioned earlier, I don't know that I'll ever really return to it. Even as a Foo Fighters fan, I don't know how much I can really get out of it. I may watch it one more time with my wife when it comes out on streaming, 
because she's also a Foo Fighters fan, but unfortunately, uh, you know, she works nights, so she wasn't able to, you know, accompany me to the theater to watch this. So I'm sure I, I'll watch it one more time with her, and that'll probably be it. But I still say, I still give it a recommend. Like I said, if you're a Foo Fighters fan, I give it a high recommend. I say go see it. If you're a fan of Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters, absolutely go see it. If yeah, you're a fan of the band, then, you know, just go into it with some concession. Realize that, you know, it's a horror comedy. It's very tongue in cheek. It's very over the top. And if you can accept that and, you know, kind of shut off your brain and enjoy a guilty pleasure, I think you'll have a good time with it as well. Yeah, I'd see it again, and I'd be interested to see with with this type of movie. Or it always makes me curious: like, is there anything related to gore or the kill scenes that got cut? You know? Oh, sure, yes. I would imagine they had to have because this this movie looks like they probably. I mean, considering what we got in the rated R cut in the theater, I, there, there's got to be more. There's no way they used all their footage. Almost always, you know, scenes and, and edits, you know, get cut out. So I would mm-hmm. imagine there's going to be some deleted scenes for the Blu-ray release. I'm looking forward to that. Not to say that I'm going to buy it, but I still want to see those special features after its release. Yeah, hopefully, you know, if it gets you know netflix or like amazon prime or something they give like uh, access to both versions that'd be cool yeah absolutely ah what do you say any any more to say about studio 666 um i I would just say it's a fun movie that uh you know just get through the second act and you'll be strapping for a good time uh once those deaths start and uh yeah I, I i find these types of movies always to be fun and considering that the main stars of it are a uh, rock band mm-hmm. it could have been a lot like it could have gone bad but it, they actually yeah. managed to uh figure out a way to work around like the weaknesses namely that they they're not actors exactly. and uh facilitate a story that makes sense for a rock band to be in so yeah i i'm glad that they put some thought into it you know it it wasn't just like let's make a slasher but starring us it's like they catered a story around um having a band in it that would actually make sense and Mm -hmm. i i like the way the band interacted with each other too it just felt kind of like realistic how given the story about what they were trying to do in the movie all the frustrations and stuff it, it it came off realistic yeah, obviously, obviously in parts like over the top, just because it's a sure. horror comedy. But otherwise, you know, it, it seems like a uh, believable setup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. So, folks, go out and see it. I saw a matinee of it, so I only had to pay like six bucks. Unfortunately, I couldn't go to my normal theater to see it because of uh, convenient show times, but. I don't mind paying for this one. I, I walked away not regretting my afternoon. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm this re- was a, <laughs> oh, I was going to say, this was a rare Friday night trip for me just because oh. I had a, I had a busy weekend. Mm-hmm. Like, I, if I, if I had to, I probably would have still been able to fit it in. But, um, with, with, with that Friday being open, I was like, yeah, why the hell not? And, mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm kind of glad because this type of movie, when they pull it off, like you could tell, obviously because it was a Friday night, there was more people than the usual 
individual Sunday morning screens I go to, and people seem to be having fun with it. Like there is a bigger crowd than what I'm normally at, and mm-hmm. I could tell by the people filing in, uh, there was plenty of people there because it was the Foo Fighters. Oh, sure. um, but, you know, I heard like, you know, audible reactions from people during the kill scenes and some of like the comedic dialogue and during cameos and stuff like that. So uh, in that case, I would say, you know, there's there's a definitely a targeted audience for it I'll, other than just horror fans in general. And for those people, I would say, yeah, check this one out and go to see it in a theater. Yeah, yeah. Support support the genre, definitely. I mean, we don't get movies like this often. Um, (laughs) It's funny that Mike mentions Kiss and the Phantom of the Park, or Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park, because I, I wasn't really thinking about that as I was watching the movie. But as I as I was driving home, I remember thinking to myself, well, at least it was better than Kiss versus or meets the Phantom of the Park, because that to me is kind of the litmus test of a bad rock and roll band movie. Like, obviously, if you're a Kiss fan, you probably love that movie and that's fine. But objectively, that movie is not very good. I still enjoy it. Don't get me wrong. I'll still watch it periodically, but definitely more in like a tongue in cheek, uh, you know, kind of ironic fashion rather than because I'm a fan of the film. I'm not even that big a kiss fan. I just, I find it hysterical that these four New Yorkers dressed as, you know, whatever demons and star childs and whatever else are in an amusement park, you know, being replaced by robots. I mean, goddamn, if you haven't seen that movie, it's so bad. You have to check it out. It's if you're a kiss fan, you've probably already seen it, but if you're not, I would say if you have an hour and a half and you want to watch something that's objectively not great, but might still turn into a good time, you could do worse than Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. <laughs> uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, I guess before we wrap, Don, you got any final things to say? I don't, I don't want to cut you off from anything. Uh, no, I mean, you guys kind of covered a lot of that stuff, but... Um... I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd probably revisit it just because now that I know a little bit more about the history of the band and some of the little in jokes that I kind of missed, maybe that'll probably bump me up a little bit more. But I mean, overall, I mean, in terms of the film, I, I don't think there's much else left for me to divulge. <laughs> I mean, I know I never really said much because I didn't really know much about the film going in. But yeah, I, I'm pretty good where I stand, at least. Cool. All right. Well, in that case, yeah, that'll do it for our discussion on it. But before we get out of here, let's find out what everyone has going on. So, Venom, I'll kick it to you. Um, Nothing new that's been released. We did, uh, Don and I and Derek did record episode seven of uh, Creature Comforts, where we looked at 1977's Empire of the Ants. I am currently editing that episode, hoping to have it out by the weekend, if not very early next week. And that's pretty much it for me. Uh, We were scheduled to record the main show this weekend, but once again, we had a scheduling conflict, so that's been put aside. Hopefully we can get to that this weekend because... Um, these were my Valentine's Day picks, and now it's going to turn into a March episode. So it, it might be <laughs> odd, but eh, whatever. 
they're vampire yeah. movies, so you know it, it still kind of falls in the genre. It's just uh, the heartbreak horror. hangover episode, I guess. We'll yeah, call it. there you go. Let, let's go with Valentine's <laughs> Hangover. Uh, I'll go with that. Yeah. So, and that's about it from me. Uh, haven't really recorded any more guest spots recently or any other main shows. So yeah, it's been a slow week for me. All right. How about you, Don? Uh, all right. So uh, in addition to uh, Creature Comforts, which uh, was a lot of fun, um, <laughs> the episode with uh, me and Bo on Dark Parade has uh, been released. Um, we looked at the um, Asian vampire classic Vampire Doll, which uh, was a lot of fun. I uh, I do have uh, two upcoming guest spots. Um, as I mentioned last time, it is uh, with the Horror Returns. I'm doing the uh, March Madness episode, uh, Best Exploitation Films, uh, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, Derek has agreed to uh, join in on that one with me, so um, looking forward to that. And um, I mentioned last time that I had an appearance on a show called uh, The um, House That Screened. Um, that has unfortunately been pushed back to um, April, I think. If I remember, if I remember the chat right, I think it's pushed back to April. Just um, we were supposed to record it last week, but then it got pushed because uh, one of the guests um, something with their uh, family members, and so uh, we're giving them time to uh, deal with that. So um, it should have been recorded. Uh, it should have been recorded the Saturday, the day you know week past we've recorded this but uh it's been pushed back to april so uh hopefully we'll be able to uh get that in and then uh the most recent episode of uh, horror countdown has uh just been released i finally do my uh, countdown for uh end of the year list um i ended up doing 20 instead of 10 but oh well um <laughs> yeah that one was a, uh, a lot of fun uh you can find that one uh, on most services so um, I'm actually in talks with uh, a couple of people to do more guest spots on their shows, but um, as of now, those are planning stages slash what are we going to talk about or stuff like that. So uh, nothing new to report, but um, potentially more to come in the in the days in the future. So that's uh, where I stand. Nice. Cool. Um, as far as I go, I I don't think I've done anything in the past week or so. I mean, I, I did the Dark Parade episode, but I was able to mention that, I believe, last Fresh Cut. So it's pretty much just that. And then we got Burning for Springwood, I think, coming up. And then hopefully the main show, as Venom said, we will get to that. And I think in the near future... That's that's all I got going on for me. Um, as far as the next episode of Fresh Cuts, the only uh, I I don't know. I'm kind of like uh, I don't think the new Batman is considered horror enough. Oh hell no! <laughs> yeah, I'll be seeing it, but <laughs> yeah, well, yeah I, we I, didn't I, put Ghostbusters on this list. I don't think Batman's no exactly. <laughs> well, only. I mean, I would never normally say a Batman movie. It's just some of the advanced reviews I'm reading try to play that. They try to tell that, like, it's so dark, you could almost call it, like, horror atmospheric or, you know, like that kind of hyperbole. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't – unless, like, I go see it and it totally does something I'm not expecting. But um, – so, I don't know. We – 
the next one we do have the option if uh that werewolf movie is still in theaters by the end of this week that's an option but if not uh you know we got plenty of stuff sitting on vod now yeah hopefully the curse is still available because i I wouldn't mind talking about that one just because it was a theatrical release that we missed that we bumped for fucking texas chainsaw massacre (laughs) yeah and honestly part of the well part of the reason we bumped is because i mean texas chainsaw massacre it was like a definitely something you know regardless of what everyone thought about it it was a big enough uh name of a movie to make it conversation worthy and i honestly didn't even know the cursed was a theatrical release until like almost the last minute and then i realized it and i was like oh well oh well and then like i was like oh we'll just do it next week oh there's another movie coming out next week so <laughs> one of those you know odd ones where everything kind of rams up against each other at once so yeah exactly but yeah we'll so, figure we'll it out yep. all right options cool All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Fresh Cuts. We will be back in a week to cover another new horror movie. Until then, we're going to get out of here. So say bye to the listeners. Adios, folks. Later. Peace.